in-depth journalism is more important than ever in a complicated, chaotic time. That's why we listen to NPR's Throughline. This is a podcast that appeals to us on so many levels. As history buffs, we love their historical contextualization of important ongoing issues. As storytellers, we love the engaging way they approach and often humanize complicated tales. As news consumers who want to stay informed, we love the way they give the story behind the big stories of the day. We try to take a similar approach on the murder sheet, and we feel confident that our listeners would enjoy giving NPR's Throughline a try. We've been going through their entire backlog recently, listening to them as we drive to source meetings. One favorite of mine was their episode about Andrew Johnson's impeachment. Throughline's coverage didn't disappoint, delving in depth into one of history's worst U.S. presidents. They also did an episode which is rather pertinent to our work, and that was the one they did about the proliferation of conspiracy theories and how they've always been part of America's DNA. That's something I think about quite a lot, given the creep of misinformation and manipulation in online true crime spaces. NPR's Throughline is a source we trust. They're all about nuance and depth and unpacking the messiness behind outwardly simple stories. Go back in time. Learn something new. Emerge more knowledgeable about today's headlines. Listen now to Throughline from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite gripping investigations ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free true crime. That's amazon.com slash ad-free true crime to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome to your next true crime obsession. Don't miss new BritBox original drama, The Sixth Commandment, which The Guardian calls as immaculate a piece of TV as you will ever see. You will hear evidence of extreme gaslighting. Help me, please. I am going to be waiting on you, hand and foot. Stream this plus the best selection of British true crime series anywhere, only on BritBox. Once you start investigating, you won't be able to turn away. Start streaming today with a free trial at BritBox.com. Content warning. This episode discusses the sexual assault and murder of a teenage girl. We're so thrilled to report huge news in the Laurel Mitchell case today. Two arrests were made in the 1975 homicide. Fred Bandy Jr. and John Wayne Lehman were apprehended and charged with Laurel's murder. We'll discuss the probable cause affidavit against these two men, which was publicly released today. But first, we'll hear from Sarah Nisley, Laurel's younger sister. Sarah has advocated for her older sister for years. And just a few days ago, she and her older brother finally got the news that they have been waiting to hear for 47 years. My name is Anya Kane. I'm a journalist. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. I'm an attorney. We first connected while looking into the Burger Chef murders, an Indiana cold case. Together, we built a spreadsheet documenting hundreds of cases of restaurant-related homicides. That original spreadsheet gave way to our podcast, The Murder Sheet. Now we maintain that same research-centric, investigative approach as we look into all sorts of homicides, including unsolved cases, historical crimes, and, of course, restaurant murders. We don't just chat about the headlines. Our podcast is a platform for our journalism. 
The murder sheet focuses on investigative reporting, thoughtful analysis, thorough research, and in-depth interviews. We're the murder sheet. And this is Beyond the Pillars, the murder of Laurel Jean Mitchell. Arrests. So today, on Tuesday, February 7th, 2023, we heard of the news of the arrests, and we called Sarah. Keep in mind that when she's referring to Kevin, she's not referring to the murder sheet's own Kevin Greenlee. She's talking about Captain Kevin Smith of the Indiana State Police. Captain Smith is the ISP post commander for Area 2, the term designating the districts of Bremen, Fort Wayne, and the Indiana Toll Road. He's also the lead detective on Laurel's case. Hello! Hi! Oh my gosh! (laughs) Oh my god, I know! (laughs) How are you doing? Oh, I'm... I'm numb. (laughs) Yeah. I'm excited, I'm mad, I'm happy, I'm everything. Oh my gosh, my heart, like, exploded this morning when I read the news, and I was just like, oh my, I'm so happy for you and your brother. Yeah, he actually uh, went with me to the police station yesterday to get the news. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I mean, do you mind if we do a very quick interview for the show where I just ask you about, like, what it was like and how are you feeling? I can do that. I can't answer any specific questions about the case. No, but... obviously not. And we're not going to ask him. Okay. Um, okay. Okay. Tell me how you found out. Okay. Kevin Smith, the um, IS state police commander that's been running this case since uh, 2012. If not before, um, he's a local boy that went from detective to captain and he said he would never give up on this case and he hasn't. And he called me Saturday and said he wanted to meet with my brother and me at the prosecutor's office in Noble County prosecutor in Albion at five o'clock Monday. And my brother's like, I'm busy. (laughs) I'm like, no, you're not. (laughs) So we got my brother there on time (laughs) and they told us they made an arrest. Two people. And they're just a little bit older than my brother. It's crazy. What was your reaction? Stunned. Well, to be honest, I had an inkling. Those were the last couple weeks, Kevin's been texting me with really weird, random questions about Laurel, like our address when this happened, and she have a driver's license, and just weird things, and like, in all this in a file? So, anyway, I just had a feeling something was up, wasn't sure what, 
until he called Saturday. Then I knew when they requested us at the prosecutor's office, I knew. I knew then. And then they told us last night at 5 o'clock, and then I had to sit on it till 10 o'clock this morning. That killed me. (laughs) But that is like, that is, I mean, goodness, that is so exciting. And I mean, how has it been since the news broke? Um, lots of phone calls and texts, that's for sure. In fact, I was just, when you called, I was, uh, standing outside talking to my neighbor. <laughs> I'd let my dog out and, and the dog barked at her. So she came over and we were talking, wow. but, uh, yeah. And, um, I, and then I just guess like, I mean, what, what are you looking forward to going forward? Um, like, I'm sure there'll be a trial. I mean, are you, are you nervous about that? How are you feeling about like the future now? Oh, I can't wait to get this trial going. I I'm going to a hearing tomorrow. My my brother's not going. He's he's. I don't know if he'll go to any of it, but I'm going to everything I can go to. Absolutely, and and then I guess you know. I mean, if you had a message for other families with victims of um, you know, unsolved homicides, what what would you say to them right now? Don't lose hope. I honest to God thought this would never ever get solved. Kevin told me he would he would do his best to do it. He almost promised me, not quite. He promised to do his best and he did it. There's a lot of luck involved. <laughs> but uh yeah. He he didn't give up. If you got a cop that won't give up, you got it made. I was like, go Kevin. <laughs> When I saw this, that's, that's amazing. He, well, Kevin texted me last night. He goes, did you get home safely? <laughs> and I told my brother that. And he goes, he's awesome. And he just met him yesterday. First time he'd met him. And uh, I said, yeah, he's awesome and a whole lot more. When we read over the probable cause affidavit, one of the names of the two men stuck out to us, Fred Bandy. When we searched his record on my case, Indiana's online court record system, we found that Bandy had a criminal history. He was charged with fondling or touching a child under 14 in 2016 and with child molesting, child solicitation, contributing to the delinquency of a minor in 2001. That reminded us of Sarah's story about a dedicated tipster who pushed to meet up with her at a Burger King. You can hear a reference to that story at Five minutes and 35 seconds in Beyond the Pillars, The Murder of Laurel Jean Mitchell, Part 2. We'll link to that episode in our show notes. That tipster told Sarah that a local child molester had confessed to Laurel's murder. But anyway, that's what I'm talking about here when I mention the Burger King tip. The, so this Fred Bandy guy, he is he, mm-hmm. he's, he from the Burger King tip? From what? The Burger King what? Didn't a guy meet you at Burger King? Oh, yeah, I thought, uh, yeah, yes, that's him. Both names, that guy gave me both those names. Oh, my God. Because he gave me Bandy, and then as we were wrapping up, he goes, do you have any questions? I said, yeah. I said, do you think he did this alone? He goes, no, I think he had help, and I think it was this guy, and that was that John Lehman. Oh I mean, they were teenagers when they did this. It's it's horrific, and it sounds like that Bandy guy went on to... Oh, yeah, he's a career criminal. Yeah. And like, that's just a lesson. Like, tipsters, if you have a tip, just keep coming forward with it. 
Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and bless Bill's heart. He's been trying for 22 years to get, to get this through with the cops. I mean, uh, I can't wait to talk to Bill myself because I know he, he finally feels justified or relieved. It's not that the cops did not believe him. They just could not do anything until there was some kind of evidence. And thankfully, and thankfully, they finally got some. Absolutely. I can't, can't tell you what, but. So, don't lose hope. If you got a cop that's worth his salt, go get it. Amazing. And listen, uh, we will let you go because we're sure you have like a bunch of calls and stuff to do today. <laughs> but we just want to say, oh, my gosh, like so happy for you. <laughs> I mean, and like uh, so much, so many of our listeners reached out to us and were like, Sarah is amazing. She's such an advocate for her sister. Their hearts went out to you. And now I'm just like, yes, like, oh, my gosh, I'm like, uh, I, I want to do a somersault. I mean, like, just congrats. I mean, just I'm so happy for you and your brother. Well, the funny thing, I just listened to the podcast yesterday because I I didn't couldn't put any apps on my phone because my phone's so weird. But I found I bought a tablet and downloaded it and and listened to it yesterday morning. <laughs> and Kevin said he will when he gets time listen to it. Okay, totally. Well, uh, we we vaguely mentioned the Burger King thing. We did not mention anything else, and. The funny, I mean, the, not funny, but like, you know, people were emailing us this morning like, wow, you guys solved it. And I, I, I'm emailing them back. No, we did not. Kevin Smith of the police solved it. We just did an episode that happened to have, you know, timing. Uh, we had no yeah. idea, you know, like, they, they were like, oh, you're in the know. That's why you dropped this. And No, we didn't. <laughs> it was just a coincidence. Uh, well, they knew, they knew back in January and Kevin said he had to sit on it till now. So... Yeah. Yeah. These things are delicate and you don't want to just say the wrong thing or, you know, like get get anyone's hopes up. So it makes sense. And well, they they needed to get their probable cause affidavit in and a judge to sign it. But they couldn't tell anybody because they didn't want these two to flee. Yes. So he said they had to keep a lid on 40 some odd people (laughs) because they they arrested them simultaneously. One in, I think, Elkhart and one in, I don't know, Topeka, Shipshawana somewhere. I haven't, re- I haven't read anything. So I, th- this morning on our local CBS, all it said was the state police were going to give an update on a decades-old cold case that's it, out of Noble County. So we're in Kosciuszko County, so people probably don't even know what they're talking about until it comes on. And they'll probably be on the new news. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And uh, we'll be doing a podcast. We'll we'll kind of read through the probable cause affidavit, like just the public stuff that they released. And okay. we'll include your interview and we'll just be like, you know, don't give up if you if you have a family going through this. I mean, it can happen even years later. Oh, definitely. I mean, I honestly thought I would be dead before this ever got solved. If it ever got solved. I'm I'm so, so happy for you. I'm so happy for you. Listen, we'll let you get back to your day, but just we're thinking right. about you and like. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Listen, all right. Uh, have a good day and and uh, all right. <laughs> pass it on to your brother too. I'm so happy. For all you right. Guys. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.
mysteries are at the heart of everything we do here on The Murder Sheet. But sometimes it's more fun to dive into a fictional caper. That's why we love the free-to-download hidden object game, June's Journey. This game is our daily escape from waiting around in line, getting stuck on hold, and just general doldrums. It is great to be able to just knock out a few levels here and there. You'll get to discover your inner sleuth and sharpen your observational skills by finding clues hidden in each level. Plus, it's like dropping straight into your own cozy mystery novel. You play as June Parker, an amateur detective with a nose for trouble. You get to tackle all kinds of bizarre crimes across a series of elegant and memorable locales. Also, you have a side hustle decorating your own island estate. I love that. I bought a swan pond. She really did. Download this game for a built-in work break. It's a great mental health boost that makes you feel accomplished before you get back to tackling whatever task you have at hand. And remember, when you support our advertisers, you're supporting our show. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Now we're going to take a second to look over the probable cause affidavit filed against Bandy and Lehman. As a reminder, whenever we're reading from an official case document, that'll be designated by this sound. So this probable cause affidavit was written up and filed by Captain Kevin Smith, who, as we mentioned, was the lead detective on Laurel's case for years He was a kid when the crime first happened and has been in close contact with Sarah Nisley, Laurel's sister, ever since he took over the case. And the charges against Fred Bandy Jr. and John Wayne Lehman are murder. On Thursday, August 7th, 1975, at approximately 4.16 a.m., the Indiana State Police received a missing person report from Richard and Wilma Mitchell who reported their daughter, Laurel J. Mitchell, had not yet come home. Two, that same day at approximately 10.30 a.m., Dana Homister called the Indiana State Police Ligonier Post and reported that there was a body found in the river at the bridge on County Road 600 North, just west of County Road 400 West, in Noble County, Indiana. The bridge that Dana Homister described is adjacent to the Mallard Roos public access site. Three, state and local police officers responded to the area and encountered Glenn Dixon and his son, who had discovered the human body in the Elkhart River. After notifying Dana Homister of the discovery, Glenn Dixon and Clyde Homister returned to the scene, waded into the water, and pulled the body up onto the bank. Four, 
The officers who arrived at the scene reported seeing the body of a white female laying face down on the west bank of the river near the boat landing ramp. On the body, officers found a class ring from Wawasee High School for the class of 1976, with the initials LJM on the inside of the ring. 5. Before the body was removed from the scene, Kosciuszko County Sheriff's Deputy Blackburn arrived with a photograph of Laurel J. Mitchell, which showed a white female consistent with the appearance of the body. So that's just going into more depth about how the body was discovered, what exactly happened, and sort of nailing down some of the timeline of the events of that evening. 6. An autopsy was performed on Laurel J. Mitchell's body later in the day, on August 7, 1975, by Dr. P. L. Sankey, M.D., at the Goshen General Hospital, and was witnessed by Sergeant T. P. Malone of the Indiana State Police. Dr. Sankey determined that the cause of Laurel J. Mitchell's death was drowning. Based upon the anatomical findings, Dr. Sankey concluded that Laurel J. Mitchell's death occurred rapidly and that she made a violent struggle to survive. 7. Dr. Sankey also noted that based upon her anatomical findings, Laurel J. Mitchell's death likely occurred within two hours of her last meal. 8. Noble County Coroner John E. Ramsey, M.D., issued a certificate of death for Laurel J. Mitchell, which indicates that the cause of death is drowning. 9. All the clothing and belongings found on Laurel J. Mitchell's body were noted and preserved for testing. These items included shoes, a sweatshirt that was zipped up, bra, underwear and blue jeans that were unzipped and unbuttoned and were inside out, as well as a silver necklace and one silver earring. So in that section, basically we're wrapping up the story of the discovery of the body. And it also, doesn't it, it gives us uh, a pretty upsetting glimpse into Laurel's last moments because it talks about her fighting it's really upsetting to think about the 17-year-old fighting for her life in this horrific situation. I just, I mean, this crime is so heinous, and I think that's why it's, it's spoken to a lot of people. We've had a lot of people reach out to us and say, like, you know, we hope this one gets solved. And I mean, we get that with any unsolved case, I think, but I think Laurel's story resonates, and, and this just makes it even more. It's just so tragic. It's just a really horrific, tragic situation, and... um. You know, it's really upsetting to read these details, but at the same time, it. I'm glad we're reading them in a PCA for an arrest. Two arrests. So this next part gets into witnesses. 10. An investigation ensued, and Indiana State Police investigators were able to determine that A. On Wednesday, August 6, 1975, Laurel J. Mitchell, who was then 17 years old, was dropped off at work by her mother at the Epworth Forest Church Camp Snack Bar. Epworth Forest is on the north side of North Webster Lake in North Webster, Indiana. B, according to her co-worker at the snack bar, when it got close to the time to close, approximately 10 p.m., the co-worker offered Laurel J. Mitchell a ride home, and she declined, indicating she had a ride. C, Laurel J. Mitchell left work around 10 p.m. Scott Pruitt advised he saw Laurel J. Mitchell walking in Epworth Forest and waved at her. Laurel J. Mitchell was supposed to meet friends at the Adventureland Amusement Park on the north side of North Webster. This would have required her to walk out to Epworth Forest Road approximately half a mile to the Adventureland Amusement Park. 
11. The investigating officers were provided many potential leads by members of the public, most of which were not actionable. However, Indiana State Police Detectives A. interviewed Frank Overmeyer and his wife on August 14, 1975. The Overmeyers lived on Epworth Forest Road, just west of Epworth Forest. Frank Overmeyer advised on August 6, 1975, he was at home watching TV and heard a loud car go by, and the car turned around and stopped east of their house. Frank reported he then heard what he thought sounded like someone slamming the trunk on a car. Frank reported he turned on his porch light and stepped outside. When he stepped out, two cars were leaving the area. The first car was the one that had gone by his house that he described was a red-orange GM product, possibly an Oldsmobile Cutlass. The second vehicle was a medium green Mustang. The Oldsmobile was very loud and sounded like it was loud by design. B. Interviewed Catherine Flynn, who lived half a mile east of Epworth Forest on Epworth Forest Road. She advised she was home on Wednesday, August 6, 1975, and that around 10 p.m. or a little later, an old car turned into the drive next door and turned around as it came back by her house. She informed investigators that she heard several voices say, let's get or let's get her. She advised the car was very loud and probably a dark color. 12. No arrests were made and the case remained open for many years. Leads were investigated and potential suspects were identified, but no information that would support an arrest was developed. 13. In 2013, Detective Sean Dunifin of the Noble County Sheriff's Department was contacted by Renee Sexton from Port Charlotte, Florida. Detective Dunifin interviewed Sexton in Florida on June 7, 2013. Sexton informed Detective Dunifin that A, she lived in Noble County as a teenager and that she was 16 years old in 1975. B, she went on a date with a man named John Wayne Lehman, and while on the date, they went to a party. After the party, John Wayne Lehman was driving her home when John Wayne Lehman admitted his involvement in a crime he committed with his friend, Fred Bandy. C, John Wayne Lehman provided details of the crime to Sexton that are consistent with the findings made by police, where Laurel J. Mitchell's body was found, and the anatomical findings made by Dr. Sankey during the autopsy of Laurel J. Mitchell's body. 14. On July 3, 2014, I interviewed Bill McDonald at the Ligonier Police Department. McDonald indicated that back in 1975, he was a sophomore at West Noble High School and that he socialized with a man named Fred Bandy Jr. Bill McDonald informed me that after the Laurel J. Mitchell murder, Fred Bandy Jr. told him that he had committed the crime that took place at Mallard's Roost. 15. On September 25, 2019, Noble County Sheriff's Department Detective Joe Hutzel met with Rick Johnson to interview him about the Laurel J. Mitchell case. Rick Johnson informed Detective Hutzel that he was friends with Bill McDonald, and that while he was in high school, he... Bill McDonald, Fred Bandy, John Wayne Lehman, and others were at a party together. While at the party, a conversation about the murder of Laurel J. Mitchell came up, and Fred Bandy Jr. stated he and John Wayne Lehman committed that crime together. I think at first blush, when you hear that last section, you're hearing a lot of instances where one of the accused men indicated to others that they had committed the crime. They were basically going around confessing. And when you get that information, a part of you thinks like, well, if these guys were going around confessing, why weren't they arrested years ago? 
And I think it's very important to remember that without evidence, a confession is just a story. Anything you hear is just a story without evidence. Unfortunately, there are a lot of people who will go around and make false confessions. Variety of reasons for that. Maybe they're trying to impress people or intimidate people or try to get attention or maybe they're mentally ill. But it happens. And so you cannot make an arrest just based on a story you hear. You need evidence that proves that that story is true. Yeah, well said. That's also part of the reason that police do hang on to hold back information that they keep from getting into the media because they're trying to possibly root out false confessions and drill down on real confessions. But the problem is that having a general idea of where Laurel's body was found and having a story about, oh, I I abducted and murdered her, without any corroborating evidence, a defense attorney could say, well, you know, the witnesses who heard him say that are lying or, you know, even if they have a tape recording, he was just trying to get attention. He wanted everybody to think he was a big, big, bad criminal. He was just being stupid. You know, we've we've certainly heard about other cases where people will confess without evidence. And it's so frustrating because I think you want that to result in something. But it really does take more. The police have to build a airtight case against somebody to get a prosecutor to sign off. So they could strongly suspect that somebody's confession is possibly true, but if they don't have any evidence, they literally can't do anything. And they have to be very careful. They have to continue with their investigation, but they have to be careful not to feed details to the person who's making the confession to make the confession stronger. We we covered the Burgershev case, And there's a pretty noteworthy example of a false confession in that case. A man named Donald Forster confessed to the crimes, and some law enforcement wasted literally years on that lead. And in the course of investigating it and interrogating him, they basically supplied him with details that made his story seem more credible when, in fact, it was a lie. So when you have people making confessions, you have to be very careful. You have to independently corroborate and verify what they say before you move. Yeah. And and as you said, it's it's really not even intentionally feeding somebody information. It can happen really casually. Like if I ask Kevin, if I'm interrogating him and I say, how many times did you stab her? You know, immediately he knows, okay. She was stabbed more than once. She stabbed more than once. And she died from stab wounds. Right. So, uh, or at least stab wounds were a factor in the crime. So you can give information just by the questions you're asking. And a very savvy criminal who's maybe trying to get something can make make a lot out of that. So, And you also have to be careful in this instance, just judging by, at least judging by what's in the PCA. They were not talking at this point to Bandy and his associate. They were talking to people who'd heard stories about Bandy or who Bandy had confessed to. You have to be careful because in a case like this, if these guys get the idea that you're investigating them, they may just pack up and disappear. So it's important to move slowly, carefully, and methodically, which appears to be just how they handled it. So then the question is, what do you do to get evidence? Let's go back to the PCA. 16. In 2019, I resubmitted items of Laurel J. Mitchell's clothing to the Indiana State Police Laboratory Division for examination 
and potential DNA testing in this case. In February 2020, a certificate of analysis was generated by the Indiana State Police Laboratory Division that shows a male DNA profile that was developed from Laurel J. Mitchell's clothing. It was further determined that both profiles came from the same person. The investigation in this case had generated three other potential suspects, other than Fred Bandy Jr. and John Wayne Lehman. All three of the other suspects were eliminated as possible contributors of the DNA profile obtained from Laurel J. Mitchell's clothing. 17. In late 2022, I directed Indiana State Police Detective Arthur Smith to obtain a DNA sample from suspect Fred Bandy Jr., based upon the information that had been provided about Fred Bandy Jr. possibly being involved. Detective Arthur Smith obtained a voluntary DNA sample, buckle swab, from Fred Bandy Jr. on December 5, 2022, at Fred Bandy's residence in Goshen, Indiana. 18. Fred Bandy Jr.'s buckle swab was submitted to the Indiana State Police Laboratory Division. On January 13, 2023, Sharon Pollock, forensic scientist with the biology unit of the Indiana State Police Laboratory Division, sent me a certificate of analysis, which shows, among other things, that Fred Bandy Jr. is 13 billion times more likely to be the contributor of the DNA in Laurel J. Mitchell's clothing than any other unknown person. 19. A review of Indiana State Police records revealed a case report from August 14, 1974, showing Fred Bandy Jr. was driving a 1971 Olds at the time. Based upon the above-described facts, I believe that Laurel J. Mitchell left work at the Epworth Forest Church Camp Snack Bar on August 6, 1975, around 10 p.m., walking in the direction of the Adventureland Amusement Park. At some point, she was removed from the area by Fred Bandy Jr. and John Wayne Lehman, using Fred Bandy Jr.'s 1971 Oldsmobile. Fred Bandy Jr. and John Wayne Lehman brought Laurel J. Mitchell to the Mallard Roost Public Access Site on County Road 600 North in Noble County, Indiana. At that location, Fred Bandy Jr. and John Wayne Lehman forcibly removed Laurel J. Mitchell from the car to the water, where she was then forcibly, deliberately drowned. It is my belief that by these actions... Fred Bandy Jr. and John Wayne Lehman committed the crime of murder, intentionally killing Laura J. Mitchell with premeditated malice. Wow. So before we talk a bit more about this really stunning twist in the case, I just want to say one thing. The fact that we covered this recently, I don't believe has anything to do with this recent arrest. And I I make a point of saying that because it is one of my pet peeves in the true crime genre when media entities take credit for solves that they don't deserve credit for. It's very rare for a podcast to actually have that level of an impact on a case. Most of what podcasts and other forms of media do are raise awareness and keep the pressure on the police to continue working it hard. But this PCA hopefully makes it clear to our listeners that this has been going on for years and we had no idea. The The state police did not talk to us about this case, and I can very much understand why, because they're obviously in December 2022 closing in on these guys. So 
more power to them for that. Obviously, there was a good reason not to talk to, a, you know, media outlets at that point. And uh, we didn't know about this. We had no idea this was coming. We're thrilled for Sarah and for her family and for anybody who's worked on this case for a long time. But um, we didn't know about it. And we're not going to take credit for it. And you shouldn't give us any credit for doing our jobs and covering the case because um, it obviously, to be blunt, did not have an impact on how this was going. So I just wanted to say that because some people sent us really nice emails and saying, you know, good job. And I just want to be very clear. We didn't do anything other than just cover it. We had this. We had no impact on this. So <laughs> hopefully that clears things up. I feel like this was a very good methodical way of gathering evidence to support repeated assertions by these two men that, you know, they had killed Laurel and basically, you know, trying to see which of the sus, obviously they had multiple suspects in this case, but which ones actually are supported by the DNA evidence that, you know, would have had contact with her when they shouldn't have had contact with her. So just, it seems like a very diligent DNA focused work by the Indiana State Police where they're not just relying on DNA to solve the whole thing, but they're also looking at the previous stories about, you know, trying to match the stories with the facts of the case. And that's that's that strikes me as very solid police work. So that's my opinion about that. And and as for these two suspects who've been arrested and accused, of course, they're they're innocent until proven guilty. I will note that they're both 67 years old. Fred Bandy Jr. was apparently living in, in Goshen. Sorry if I'm saying that wrong. And John Wayne Lehman was living in Auburn. So uh, that's according to the, the Ink Free News. And so they're 67. They're in their early 20s when this happened. And when you look up John Wayne Lehman on my case the only thing that comes up is the murder of Laurel J. Mitchell now. But Fred Bandy Jr. had these child molestation charges. And so he obviously, you know, went on to prey on other underage kids. I hope that this strikes fear into anybody who did some vile stuff years ago. I hope, I hope people don't sleep at night because of this, because they're maybe you said the wrong thing to some people at a party and maybe your DNA is there and maybe you're going to get a knock on your door and you're going to have to answer for what you did. And you're going to have to <laughs> look upon the family members of, of people you victimized. I really, I hope, I hope cases like this terrify the predators who haven't been caught yet because it should, it really should. But anyways, that's my uh, daily rage, I guess, going off script. That's what happens. I just get into a rage. So, Kevin, as, as somebody, you know, we've both looked into cold cases and, and, you know, certainly unsolved cases that have gone unsolved for a long time. This gives me hope for, for other people who might be in similar situations with their family member's case going unsolved, that things can happen even if it's years later. There's always hope. And we just want to say again that we are thrilled for Sarah, her brother, and everyone who worked in law enforcement, the media, and just anyone who was invested in seeing this awful mystery solved. Thanks again to Sarah for talking to us today. We pray that this story gives hope to family members of other victims of unsolved murders. Thanks so much for listening to The Murder Sheet. If you have a tip concerning one of the cases we cover, please email us at murdersheet 
at gmail.com. If you have actionable information about an unsolved crime, please report it to the appropriate authorities. If you're interested in joining our Patreon, that's available at www.patreon.com slash murdersheet. If you want to tip us a bit of money for records requests, you can do so at www.buymeacoffee.com slash murdersheet. We very much appreciate any support. Special thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for the murder sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. If you're looking to talk with other listeners about a case we've covered, you can join the Murder Sheet Discussion Group on Facebook. We mostly focus our time on research and reporting, so we're not on social media much. We do try to check our email account, but we ask for patience as we often receive a lot of messages. Thanks again for listening.